Good morning. Hey, guys. Right. Well, it's exciting to see. Um, as has already been said, my name's John, or Johnny Lou, which is a, a name I had when I was very young, a long time ago. But, um, yeah, it's a privilege to be here this morning. We were away last week, actually, my wife and I, we were in Iceland, and I thought, what better way to start than have a few holiday snaps? So, um, do you want to see what our trip was like? Amazing. It was great. A little bit cold inside, um, and the food was all right, but um, that was Tony's joke anyway. But <laughs> Sorry, Tony, I stole your joke, but um, yeah, it was great being away, but we did get to hear Tom's talk last week, and I thought he did a great job um, looking at Psalm 126, and this is actually the last in our series on the Psalms, and we've been looking at um, t- helping them um, teach us to pray praying through the psalms, not just praying any old psalm that you feel like, but across the whole range of psalms. And the psalms have so many different genres and themes to them. We've been looking right across that. So we've looked at praying under pressure. We've looked at praying with assurance. We've looked at praying for the church. James took us through that about Zion. We're Zion, the church of God. We looked at praying the word and last week praying whilst waiting from Psalm 126. And this week, the final one, we're looking at praise. And I think it's a fitting end for us. So we're going to be looking in a moment at Psalm 146. So if you want to turn there, you can. If you've got a Bible, it will come up in a bit. But I want to start by asking you a question. And it's a bit of a strange question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If you were going into battle, what weapon would you take with you? How would you arm yourself? Maybe you'd be like one of the kids that's all running around with like an Iron Man arm that extends. Maybe you'd have some kind of like medieval sword or something. But how would you arm yourself if you went into battle? Well, I'm pretty sure you'd want something. I'm pretty sure you'd want something to defend yourself with if you were in a battle. Well, in 429 AD, near the town of Mould, not a great name for a town, but near the town of Mould in Flintshire in Wales, a battle was about to break out between the British, who were actually being led by a French bishop named Saint Germanus, who was actually there to fight heresy that was coming in the church. And he was unarmed, and they were against the Picts and the Saxons. And the battle was about to begin, and Saint Germanus leads his army in three cries of Alleluia. Alleluia! 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 And these cries ring around the valleys of Wales and the other armies hear the cry and they're scared. So terrified, in fact, that they drop their weapons and run. The battle is won without a weapon even being lifted. Or to put it another way, the only weapon lifted was their voice in praise. And there's actually still a monument today in a field near the town of Mould commemorating this victory. You see, praying praise is comfort for the soul. It reminds us of who God is, but it's also warfare. And it's also effective, as you can see. And so today we're going to look at praying praise from Psalm 146. So hopefully it will come up behind me and you can follow with me as I read this. So read with me. 
Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord as long as I will live. I will sing praises to God while I have been. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourner, or that can mean traveler or foreigner. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. I realized I hadn't set my timer, so that's like a free five minutes for me. But <laughs> we've reached the last section of the Psalms, and these are all devoted to praise. So these last five Psalms from Psalm 146 to 150 are filled with praise, and they all have a very similar structure. They all start, praise the Lord, and they all end, praise the Lord. And as has been said many times throughout this series, much of the Bible speaks to us, but the Psalms speak for us. And we're going to go through this psalm, we're going to look at three themes. The first is praise, then we're going to look at trust, and then we're going to look at Jesus, our ultimate hope, through the gospel. So praise. Praise the Lord. Well, Praise the Lord means alleluia. Sorry, praise the Lord in Hebrew is alleluia. That's why they cried out alleluia, alleluia. It means praise the Lord. So we start off in this psalm. It says, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord as long as I will live. I will sing praises to my God while I have been. The psalm starts with praise, and I think that's a great place to start. But I don't think it's often where we start in prayer. I don't know about you, but for me, I often kind of start with, what do I want? Rather than praying to who I'm wanting it from, or even actually thinking, actually, I don't want to just start by praying what I want. I want to start by looking at who I'm praying to. And prayer should be a rhythm of our life. It's not just requesting what we want as if God's like some kind of divine waiter. No, it's a relationship. It's recognizing who God is. That's why we start our times here by singing praise. We start by singing praise and it reminds us of who God is. And we need to be reminded because we forget, because we get distracted. And praise focuses us on who God is. And we have so many reasons to praise or well, you might use the word respect or worship or honour. There are other words you could use for praise. But we've got so many reasons to praise God. But sometimes, I don't know about you, but for me in the moment, if someone says, oh, so many reasons to praise God. Give me some reasons. I'm, I struggle a little bit in the moment. I might say, like, oh, he's, he's good. He's, he's, he's God. He, uh, and I sometimes struggle to come up with all the reasons. But I found writing them down really helpful. So... I write down when I remember different characters, characteristics of God or different things that he's done. I write them down. I have an 
app in my phone. It's just like a notes app. and I write them down. And what I've done over years is build up a treasury of praise. And it's something that when I think, oh, I can't remember something, oh, there must be more about you, God. And I can go back to these and go, yes, now I remember. Yes, you are like that. You are like that. And I can remind myself of these great truths. What's interesting to note about this psalm here is the psalmist's perspective, and we're not told who the psalmist is, but the psalmist is, write, writes this before Jesus. So before the Son comes in flesh and takes on the cross. So this is pre the cross. And yet he still has so much to praise God for. So how much more do we have to praise God for? And when we struggle to praise, we have to stir our soul. It says, praise the Lord, O my soul. Sometimes it's not easy to come and praise. You feel like, oh, you've got to kind of fight against it. But you're like, you stir your soul. It comes from the depths within. You see, praise isn't just an overflow of our experience of God. It's an expression of our faith in God. It's a declaration of who God is and of how worthy he is to be worshipped. And when we pray this psalm, we join with Jesus, the son who praises the father through the spirit. And I thought it'd be helpful to start by saying some reasons of why we should praise God. So I've written down from my treasury that I have some reasons why we should praise God. So I'm just going to go for it. Here we go. He is first. He is last. He is the Alpha and the Omega, beginning and the end. He is our hope. He is our joy. He is our reason. He is our maker, creator, author, and perfecter of our faith. He is our righteousness, the Lamb slain for us. He is our atonement. He makes us at one with God. He was crucified. He is alive. He is the perfect sacrifice, the author of salvation. Our firm foundation, the Lord of every nation. He is above everything. He is the King of kings, Lord of lords. He is mighty and all-powerful. He is worthy of our every praise. He is ancient of days. He is knowable. Yet still remains a mystery being revealed more and more through his intimacy. He is our father, our friend, our brother. He is close. He is slow to anger and abounding in love, abounding in mercy. He's the grace giver. He is jealous and zealous for his people. He is gracious and compassionate. He is full of mercy and tenderness, yet is the judge of all and the bringer of perfect justice. He is love. He is the giver of life and gave his life to make us right. He is the light in the midst of darkness. He is our hope. He is to be awed. This is our God. They're just a few reasons. There's so many more. It's incredible. When we look at his character and the characteristics of God, of who he is and what he's done, there are so many reasons to praise him. There are so many reasons why we can start with praise. But the second part of this psalm looks at trust. So I want to move into that. It says, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day, his plans perish. Now, princes here can be translated as influential people, 
But actually, in this specific context for the psalmist, there would have been a royal family. There would have been kings and princes, and they would have been the ones exercising the authority. Indeed, if it was David, the king who wrote this, then he himself was a prince and was king. And the psalmist is saying, don't put your trust in princes. And hey, that's true today. You know, if you booked an Uber or a taxi and it comes and Prince Philip's there behind the wheel, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm not trusting that, that taxi driver, right? So who are you putting your trust in? You see, these days, royals and governments, the trust in those is low. We don't trust established, as a people, we don't trust established power systems anymore. As a society, we've been burned too many times by that. So instead, we trust celebrities for the latest fashions or diets. We trust authors. Maybe if we're just a little bit more organized, that will spark a joy. Or a bit more mindful or zen. Or maybe uh, a bit more eco-friendly. We trust Google and Facebook until we find out they've stolen our data. But we trust the internet to give us all the answers. It's got everything on there. It'll give us all the information we need. We trust data, especially in where I work. It's all about data. The more data we have, the more we can understand things, the more we can make better decisions. And we have this drive for data. The more I can analyze stuff. But it only actually goes so far. And we also trust ourselves. We have this narrative that we're told, you can do it. Nothing's impossible. You can do whatever you want. You can do it on your own. You don't need anyone else. You can do it. You can be a better person. If you just work harder, go to the gym a bit more, or you know, just relax more, have more fun, you can do it. We're told these things. We trust influencers. And these can come via social media or the established media. But they can even be leaders within the church. I've seen people build their lives on leaders. And when those leaders leave, for whatever reason, or fall or die, then it leaves those people crushed. Because good leaders build people not wholly to trust on them, but wholly to trust on Jesus. And we trust in all of these things to different extents. Some of those may have resonated with you. Some of them you might be like, don't even know what you're talking about. But prayer shows where we are ultimately trusting. And if we're not praying, it's likely because there's a trust issue at the heart. I know for myself, the times when I've struggled most in prayer, or struggled to pray, is when I've struggled to trust God because of my circumstances and situations because I'm questioning him and questioning who he is or it's when I'm trusting myself and I feel like I don't need God not that if you'd asked me I'd ever put it that way but that's how it is so I think I've got it all sorted God I don't need you so who or what are you trusting in and where do you turn when the going gets tough or even when the going gets good? Who or what are you trusting in? 
You see, the psalmist is clear. We can trust in all or some of these things, but ultimately it's short-term, it's short-lived. And can it save? No, because only God can save. So as a venue in Elton, we're trusting God for Elton's salvation. Ultimately, our hope is in him. And churches fail when they trust something or someone other than God. And people fail when they trust something or someone other than God. He is our ultimate hope. So who are you trusting? You see, Jesus himself knew the pain of betrayal as one of his closest friends sold him out. And the moments before that, others of his closest friends let him down whilst he said, just wait, just stay watch with me. And they fell asleep. And then after that moment, they deserted him. And one of his closest disciples, Peter, denied him. Jesus knew this full well. He knew he couldn't trust in man. You see, the psalm uses a beautiful piece of poetry here in Hebrew that we miss the translation in English. You see, with the son of man, man in Hebrew is Adam. And we're all part of Adam, mankind. He was the first man. We're part of man. And earth is Adama. So in the psalm it says, don't trust the son of man in whom there's no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. So you've got Adam, man, and Adama, earth. Or you could say it like this, the earthling returns to the earth. One day we'll all die. Our plans will come to nothing. God alone is our salvation. He is our only hope. And often I feel like we don't put our trust in God because we don't start with praise. And if we don't start with praise, we become more distant from God. We forget his character, his nature, who he is and what he's done. Praise reminds us of who he is, of how trustworthy he is, of how great he is. And this is where I want to land with the gospel. You see, the psalm transitions us into this. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. You see, the psalmist doesn't just say, don't put your trust in man and leave it there. He shows us where to place our trust, in God, the God of Jacob. See, Jacob was also called Israel, and we are in Jacob because we're in Christ. He says, your hope is in the Lord God. This is where we should place our trust. This is deliberately in contrast to the previous set of verses. This is a common poetic or artistic device to use opposites. So he's saying, don't trust here trust here it's a common way of in in poetry of of showing um, a contrast and indeed he goes even further the psalmist and verse seven to nine repeats the lord the lord the lord the lord just in case you didn't get it okay just in case you were thinking maybe i should still trust him man the lord the lord it's a common thing repetition get it into their heads don't trust him man Trust in the Lord. It's not only pointing to where and who, but we will see the why as well. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything 
within. We should trust the one who made it all. Colossians 1 verse 16 says it like this, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The psalm then goes on to say that he keeps faithful and true forever. Again, this is a contrast to the princes who deceive. He is faithful even when we are not. But I really want to land here. The bulk of the psalms, Psalms 146, verse 7 to 9, it says this. He executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry, sets prisoners free, opens the eyes of the blind, lifts up those who are bowed down, loves the righteous, watches over the sojourner, or it could be foreigner or alien or immigrant, upholds the widow and the fatherless. This is at the heart of the gospel, and it's prophesied in Isaiah 61, which says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort those who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, gladness instead of mourning, praise instead of a faint spirit. And Jesus confirms this in Luke 4. Indeed, Luke 4 is a moment where before it, all of the Bible has been pointing to this point. It's been waiting for this point. The whole of the Old Testament is this wait for a saviour. They're waiting for a saviour. And at first you think, is this guy? And then it's not. You think, is it? It's not Adam. Okay. Is it Joseph? No, it's not Joseph. Okay. It's not Moses. All right. It's not David. It's not Solomon. And then here in Luke 4, Jesus says, I'm here. It's me. Today, and he reads Isaiah 61, he says, today, in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. I'm here. Your saviour has come. I'm here to bring justice. So we pray this with Jesus, but we also pray it to Jesus. And verse 7 says, God executes justice for the oppressed. We need to talk about justice. It's not something we really talk about. We certainly don't talk about it enough as Christians. Jenny referenced in her talk in week two that we're happy to know a loving, compassionate and inclusive God, but a just God? We don't think about that. The psalmist definitely did. The psalmists, they definitely thought about a just God. Because if God is not just, then God is not love. If sin and injustice don't anger God, don't kindle his wrath, then God is not God. God is not just. And God is not love. And God is just. And God is love. Let's not reduce God to being some kind of sedate being. His love is shown in his sacrifice. But it's also shown in his wrath or anger against injustice and evil and sin. You see, if something happened to my wife, Rach, and I wasn't angry about it, there would be something wrong. 
If I love her, I should hate it when things come to harm her. That's what God's like. He's a good father. And good fathers hate evil. They hate injustice. And they hate it when harm comes. I found uh, this book called The Crucifixion really helpful. It's a book by a a lady called Fleming Rutledge. And uh, because I've got quite a simple brain, it took me a long time to finish the book. But I found it so helpful what she says. She says, injustice is nearly always suffered by the marginalised in society. The poorly educated, the impoverished, the invisible. Injustice is rarely encountered by the rich. God's heart has always been for the oppressed. In Exodus, he says, do not deny justice to your poor people in lawsuits. His heart has always burned for the oppressed. And one mark of civilised society is how we treat the vulnerable. God cares about how we treat the vulnerable. And we see throughout the Bible that when the people turn away from God, morality goes out the window. They don't care about the vulnerable and God hates it because he loves people and he loves the vulnerable. God's heart burns against injustice. He hates it when people sin, when people tread down others. He hates it when people are mocked for their skin colour, for their culture, for their gender. He hates injustice and we should hate it too that's why I'm so excited about us doing cap here because it's a real way of showing love to the vulnerable but this is a real challenge for me personally as well preparing this do I stand up for the broken do I stand up for the oppressed and it can be easy for us to live in denial can be all too easy for us to be comfortable and to overlook the hardships around us. We can end up a little bit like um, Marie Antoinette in the midst of a bread crisis in France. They said, oh, we have no bread to eat. She's reported to say, probably never actually said it, but let them eat cake. She just missed the point altogether. And we can sometimes end up a bit like that. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but you can have those thoughts that go, well, why don't they just get a job or... Why don't they parent better? Or why don't they do that? Why don't they just break that addiction? Why don't they just do... And we can think, oh, why don't they just get it sorted? But God's heart burns for the oppressed. Why am I focusing on this? Well, partly because it's in the psalm, but because our hope is not in this world, but it's in the one to come, where God's ultimate justice will be shown. Because we need only look around this world at its fragile nature to see the brokenness, the pain, the evil, the anger, the hatred. And our culture really struggles to grasp this. It really struggles because in one hand, it tries to idolise people. I don't know if you've seen this, but you probably just need to look on Twitter or something or in the media and you'll see it. One hand, they want to idolise people. They want to put people on a pedestal and say, wow, this guy, look, he's amazing. Or she's amazing. Look what they've done. Look how great they are. And on the other hand, they'll go, oh, hang on, we found this from their past that doesn't really line up with where we're at with culture now. So, oh, no, tear them back down. Oh, no, oh, this guy's great. Oh, hang on, no, they, they did this one thing. And then that's it. Like, they can't grapple with this, like, We can't find anyone who's perfect. So every time we're pushing someone up and idolizing them, we find something else that pulls them back down. 
Because our culture can't grapple with sinful human nature. It can't grapple with it. In fact, actually going back to the original story about San Germanus, the reason he came to Britain was to fight against the heresy that was in the church that you can do it on your own. That if you just try harder, you can get there. That's why he was here, to fight against the heresy or the untruth that you don't need God. We desperately need God. You only need to look around this world to see the brokenness. But our hope isn't placed here. Our trust isn't placed here, and it's certainly not placed in humanity. It's placed in God. Rutledge puts it like this, from beginning to end, the Holy Scriptures testify the predicament of fallen humanity is so serious, so grave, so irredeemable from within that nothing short of divine intervention can rectify it. That's exactly what's happened. God doesn't look on unaware. He doesn't look on disinterested, singing platitudes of love while sending out pithy Instagram pictures with gospel quotes on. No. He involves himself right in the heart of the story. He gets involved. He takes on flesh. In Adam, we die. The earthling returns to the earth, but Jesus, the second Adam, redeems, rectifies which means to make right. His death absorbs the wrath of God, absorbs our sin, and his resurrection brings new life. See, this psalm is about social justice, but it's also about us. You see, we're under the oppression of the enemy. We're hungry for food that satisfies. We're imprisoned to this world. We're blind to Jesus without revelation. We're bowed down. We're not righteous, but he makes us righteous. He has overcome the enemy. He feeds us with food that satisfies our soul. He gives us true freedom and opens our eyes to see the beauty of who he is. God comes to those who are oppressed. It's for those who trust in him. And he exchanges sin-stained rags for righteous robes. He sees us as second Adam. And this is an incredible truth. For those of us who trust in God, this is an incredible truth of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. But there is a sober tone. For those who don't trust in Jesus, he sees you as in first Adam, still sin-stained and he hates sin we've looked at that he hates wickedness and he rectifies it by sending it out of his kingdom but it doesn't have to be like that if you place your trust in him then you can know him and you can know what it's like to be in second Adam See, this is the gospel that God so loved the world that in his anger against our sin, he didn't get rid of us and start again. He didn't just go, right, that's it. See you later, guys. I'm going to start again. No, he sent his son to take on flesh, become man, and yet still remain God as Jesus to redeem us, to restore us, and ultimately to rectify us, to make every wrong right. And it doesn't end here. 
Indeed, the wonder is that it's just begun and it's only going to get better and better and better. Because once he rectifies it to perfection, the perfection he intended, there will be no end. See, we're coming to the end of this psalm, but it's an echo of the end of days itself. It says, the Lord will reign forever. His is an unending kingdom. It goes on and on and on. O Zion, as James said back in week three, that's us. We're the people of God. We're the bride of Christ. To all generations, young and old and everyone in between. This unending kingdom culminates. It ends in heaven and earth becoming one, in God restoring all things to himself, where he rectifies all things. He places himself in the story as Jesus takes on flesh and sets about the restoration of mankind back to God, redeeming us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, purchasing for us new life in God, eternal life. And eternity will echo with our cries of Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. Praise the Lord. Wow. What a joy it is to pray this psalm. That we will one day stand in eternity crying out, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.